you're, if you're like me, the last 12 months of your life has caused you to think about a lot of things and question and wonder where you are. Those in the world around us are oftentimes asking all sorts of questions and uh, debating amongst themselves what it is that, uh, that will help us to reach the things that will ultimately make us happy, fulfilled, safe, and secure. And yet, many of us Christians who claim that we know the answers to those questions still struggle with these things. My hope this morning is that the Word of God will help remind us of things that we already know and encourage our minds and our hearts to cast ourselves in the right place. If you have a copy of the Word of God, open it please to the book of Colossians. Our passage this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Please follow along with me as I read it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we ask that in this next segment of our time together, that you would do what we cannot do by opening our eyes, by inclining our ears, by giving us understanding, by helping us to apprehend things which are beyond us natively. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored and that in this time we would be fed your word and you would do in us what is needful. We pray that your son Jesus would be magnified and we would go home having greater apprehension of him and greater hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a number of believers uh, in the city of Colossae. Uh, we enter our passage in the middle of the letter. And so in order for us to properly understand what the Apostle Paul is speaking about, it's helpful for us to consider a few things about where he's been in the letter. If you look at the passage itself, there are four main things that I'd like to highlight this morning, and they form largely the structure of uh, the text and the structure of our message this morning. First, we need to understand something of the context of the Apostle Paul as he's speaking to the saints here in his letter. And secondly, in the text itself, we see the Apostle asserts something which is actually a precondition. And this precondition forms the third point, which is what the Apostle here calls these believers to do. And lastly, the apostle gives us a hope, the hope that justifies and casts our eyes to why this call makes sense. First, let's look at the context of the passage. Uh, it's helpful for us to remember that the Bible, when it was originally written, is, was not 
divided in chapters and verses. The scriptures are given to us today uh, with chapter and verse divisions, largely as a help and an aid. Um, and the chapter and verse divisions provide something of a, of a separation of concepts, breaking into the, um, to the writings themselves. But this is a letter. And so as we think of it as originally a letter to these people, we need to recognize that here the apostle is not writing something which is disjoint or disconnected from what he said before. And so it helps us to think through what he has been saying and what the burdens of his heart are in the letter as we understand and interpret what he says here. We're going to look at this in four, by selecting four uh, passages from earlier in the book to help us understand where he is and what he's saying here. First, Colossians 1, uh, verse 9 through 14. In these verses, the apostle explains his goals and his hopes for the believers here. He says that he wishes that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and that they would come to have a spiritual wisdom and understanding and that in that, that filling of knowledge and gaining spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they would walk in a matter worthy of the Lord and that by walking in a matter worthy of the Lord that they would bear fruit in every good work, being strengthened in accordance to God's power and that God would give them endurance and patience with joy in, in their work. Ultimately, he also points them to the fact that all of these things are a product of God's delivering them from the domain of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Moving forward to verse 21 through 22 of Colossians chapter 1, the apostle reminds his audience that they were once alienated from God separated from God. And that separation was the result of sin, sin which made them hostile in their minds that would reject God and reject his plan and his purposes for them. This hostility in their own minds did not just stay in their minds, but resulted in their doing evil deeds. And these evil deeds are marked as uh, evil largely because they polluted and distorted God's design and were direct violations of God's revealed will. The apostle then reminds them that Christ has reconciled them to God in his own body. And this reconciliation will one day produce a result where they will be holy and blameless and above reproach. So here we see something of a transition which has occurred. Moving forward now to chapter 2 in verse 1 through 3. We see the apostle then telling them that his goal for them is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So we see this recurring theme that the apostle has where he's calling them that they would increase in knowledge, increase in an understanding on the full depth of appreciation for what Christ has done and who he is in whom, the apostle continues on, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And lastly, in our context, as we lead up to our passage for this morning, in verse 8 through 13, the apostle goes on and he says that they were circumcised in their hearts. And he distinguishes between the circumcisions that the Jewish people were used to, which was a physical sign, a sign of being separated from the world and being found in the Lord. And the apostle then declares to them that their circumcision is one made without hands, made by Christ himself. And this circumcision has produced in them a new constitution, a new heart. 
And he then goes on to call them to be watchful and thoughtful about the kinds of ideas and philosophies that they accept and what teaching they accept and what they give themselves over to. And he particularly qualifies them to be careful that any sort of philosophy or ideas that imports some notion of human-made wisdom or man-made religion that does not align with the gospel, they should reject. This requires them to fully understand the gospel and fully understand what the Lord Jesus has done for them. So now we arrive at this particular passage in chapter 3, and we begin by looking at what the assertion that Paul begins with here in verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, and he repeats this, and he says something more about it in verse 3, when he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Before the apostle makes a call to his believers in verse 2, he starts by stating something which is a condition, which actually becomes more of a precondition and a foundation for his exhortation. And this precondition, he starts with by saying that they have been raised with Christ. He states it retrospectively. So he declares that something that has already happened. And based upon what has already happened, he makes his call in verse 2. Precondition basically stipulates what must hold true before what happens next can actually happen. What is the foundation that the Apostle Paul is stating here? How should we understand it? The Apostle Paul, in summary, is describing the new life. Christians, believers, have a new life. How are we to understand this, and how do we break it down to understand what the apostles' call then is? First, we should look at this new life as it relates to our old life. Second, we'll look at what happened by means of a transition. And third, we'll examine the new life itself. First, let's look at the old life. When he says that we have been raised with Christ, or we have died, what is he referring to? He's referring to our old life. In order to understand the old life, we need to understand more accurately God's original design and how we as mankind have distorted that design. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and he created mankind. The Bible tells us that God created men in his own image. In his image, he created men, male and female. When he created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, and he commissioned them to work and to keep the garden. He gave them the goal in the, to uh, be fruitful and multiply. He made them in his image as image bearers to exercise dominion over his creation as representatives of his character, and in so doing, that they should reflect in his character accurately and that they should exercise that dominion as God's agents. And God called what he created very good. And yet, very early in the Bible, he reveals to us what happened in the beginning, which distorted the original design of God for Adam and Eve. They were swayed and went astray, and they pursued purposes which were not in alignment with what God gave them. In fact, they desired to be like God in a way that he did not endorse 
They pursued autonomy, and they pursued a purpose which ultimately they believed would, believe, would result in a little less dependency on God, if not being independent of him altogether. And this resulted in consequences for them right then. It also resulted in consequences in the whole world and consequences on us now. They became cursed, and their curses, which God administered, were, were targeted largely upon the things that God had given them. The woman experienced cursing uh, in bearing children. It became difficult and dangerous. And her relationship with her husband became difficult and hazardous. The man and his work and his God-given role to work and to keep, his work became difficult and dangerous. And all of the human race fell into sin. And from then on, all people have been born in sin. And since then, we have pursued and been pursuing all sorts of things apart from God. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Immediately after this fall, people begin to carry out all sorts of wickedness. We murder, we hurt, we retaliate against others, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we may slander, we covet, we are discontent, we are greedy, we are ungrateful. We pursue all sorts of immorality, drunkenness, obsessions with things that will please the flesh, gluttony of any sort of thing, whether it be food or drink or intoxications, or self-indulgence in entertainment and rest and sleep. We look for and we find and we invent all sorts of activities to engage and tingle our senses. Our physical bodies are pursuing pleasure constantly. And what we wish for and set our minds on is regular, constant, unmitigated, unmixed pleasure. Basically fun. We pursue these things out of a desire to produce and to feel gratification in our flesh. We use our bodies and pursue all sorts of distortions from the way that God designed us, and we find new and novel ways to produce pleasure. Moreover, our sin distorts our relationships. We find this every day. Those of us who have spouses or friends, brothers and sisters, parents, colleagues, this is, no, this is part and parcel with our experience. We pursue and we want to be understood. We want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to be loved by others. We craft our behavior in ways that we, belay, we believe will obtain this sort of acceptance and love from others. We even subject ourselves to the desires of others just because we want their approval. And we make ourselves slaves to others' opinions and whims in vain attempts to get from them what we believe will give us pleasure. And then we're frustrated because we don't get the sort of acceptance from them that we wish. We wish that they would love us. We wish 
They would understand us. We wish to be accepted, easily forgiven. And yet, when we don't have those things, we respond in anger. When we're disappointed, we're disillusioned, we hate, we resent people, and we find wells of bitterness in our hearts welling up towards others. We feel ill will, and we express those feelings towards people or about people, causing us to harm them or their reputations, or motivating us to do things to get what we want that ultimately result in more harm, either directly to them or collaterally. And the Bible gives us warning time and again that what we do does not end right there. The consequences of our sin unfortunately have collateral damage as well. In the end, we are given over to anxiety, depression, vanity, pride, self-conceit, and self-deceit. Worse still, if this were not bad enough, people abandoned worshiping and serving God as Creator and Lord. They search for and invent and manufacture gods which are impersonal, those gods which are deaf and blind. We serve these false and made-up gods, but we only serve them as a means to get what we think they'll give us. We don't actually submit ourselves to them. We do not submit our wills to these gods. They're false gods. They're idols. And yet, we pursue them anyway. We ultimately are after something that we believe they will give us, and we become angry with the true God. Mankind is regularly judging God on standards which we invent. If you've ever spoken to someone and asked them questions about what they believe, and maybe you've encountered this with people, and you've sought to ask questions to challenge them on what they believe about God, I remember a time in college when I was seeking to give the gospel to um, a classmate, and our class had run over, and in the cl- course of the, the discussion, things about philosophy and the world and worldviews had come up, and we ended up having a conversation which led out of the class, and as I was beginning to speak to this guy, I was pr- attempting to explain the gospel to him, and his response, I still remember to this day, he he found the gospel repulsive. He found it repulsive that, that a father would, would send his son to die. And he, in my mind, I, I remember being awestruck. I, I, I didn't know how to respond because I'd never heard such a thing. I, I, later on, I was thinking, you, you could have said this. You could, and I realized that, that this young man had no apprehension of sin, no apprehension of a holy God, And his judgments of God were based upon his understanding, and his understanding was flawed. He, in fact, like many others, was angry that there would be a God who would allow evil or would be a God who would do things other than what they think that God should do. So, we as humans have not pursued God. We have not pursued to learn or do what pleases him. And we've cursed God. We've denied God, either that He exists or that He deserves our worship. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. The Bible goes on to say that therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and to a debased mind. The result of suppressing truth about God is further disorientation. It's further distortion. The consequences of rejecting God is further brokenness, not satisfaction. As a result, we've lost our ability natively to think rightly, to judge correctly, and to even reason well. People have taken no or little interest in the things which would actually promote their very thriving. We've become so disoriented and confused, and we continue to pursue the things which we think will ultimately give us satisfaction and joy. We have no idea that we are incurring upon ourselves the very wrath of God, which is just and right. And we have no idea that the things we place our hopes in and the things we've set our affections on are finite and will never fully satisfy. Although we think they are and they think they will be, we will one day wake up and find that what we perceive here as happy or as joyful is not lasting, it's fleeting. In fact, we are living with, on top of a ticking time bomb. Now this describes all of us. This describes the human race. The indictment doesn't stand and uh, lie upon those who are outside the church. And yet, this is what we once were. We are not this anymore. In Ephesians 2, 1 through, 11, 1 through 3, the apostle says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We followed the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Colossians 1.12 says we were in the domain of darkness. In verse 21, he, he says that we were once alienated in, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In chapter 2, verse 13, we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And so here... When the apostle begins his writing in verse 1 of chapter 3, we have the backdrop of who we once were and what's characterized our lives up until this point. And here he transitions and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ. This transition, the apostle Paul brings together two things. And these two things, logically or fit a little bit differently than the, the order in which he mentions them here. In verse 3, he says, you have died. And in verse 1, you have been raised. We'll talk about them together. In chapter 2, verse 12, another way he describes this transition is, we have been buried with Christ in baptism. In verse 3 of our, our passage here says, you have died. You have died you have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, according to Galatians 2, verse 20. He also then says, at the same time, we have died 
He says, we have also been raised with Christ. Colossians 2, 12-13, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. God made us alive together with him. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 4 of the book of Ephesians, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. So, we have this transition which occurred where we had an old life, and this transition occurred which has brought us now into something different. This transition finds its source and center in Jesus Christ. God did something, and that action was centered in Christ. The effects of that action are cosmological and personal. The consequences on us are derived from and continually connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he says that he delivered us from the domain of darkness, he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Jesus reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death. And this transition caused us to leave an old life and come into a new life. What is this new life? Is this life primarily physical? Or is the apostle speaking of something different? It's not preeminently physical in nature. It's not focused on our earth-centered life. It's not centered or originated in this world. It's not focused primarily on our physical flesh. It's spiritual. It respects sin and our relationship to God and all of the consequences of our sin and how they relate to our lives now. In the end, it will result in a resurrection of our bodies, but that's not the focus of the apostles' attention here. How do we know this from the text? Well, we look at the way that the apostle describes the connections. What does he call out here in the text? In verse 13 of chapter 1, he conjoins the domain of darkness and being delivered from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son with redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In chapter 2, verse 11, he talks about circumcision made without hands. It's made without hands. It's not physical. It's in our hearts. He continues to convey this new life as a transfer from a darkness and a forgiven, God's forgiving our sins, our trespasses. It's distinct from our old life in that we were mired into with trespasses and sins and we're guilty before God. But he goes on to say in verse 3 that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a quality of our new life which the Apostle Paul is trying to draw our attention to, and that quality is of importance for us to understand the call in verse 2. He says that our life is hidden. There's two ways in which we should understand our life being hidden in Christ. Number one, our life, our new life, being hidden in Christ relates to its safety. We are safe in Christ. If you think in terms of the image of the wrath of God coming upon the world at the flood, and you think of what God told Noah to do, Noah was to build an, an oak, a, a big, a big uh, wooden boat 
a boat in which he and his family would enter in, and God would shut it, and they would be closed, and they would be protected and hidden from the wrath of God on the world. Or maybe you can think back to the Old Testament uh, uh, instructions for the cities of refuge, where a man who perhaps accidentally murdered someone or, or harmed someone or caused that person to die is now justly uh, under condemnation and can be pursued by the close relative of the person that they've accidentally killed. And the avenger of blood now has uh, the right under the Old Testament law to then pursue this person for retribution. And God provided a way of escape. And in that way of escape, the person who was responsible for this involuntary manslaughter would pursue a city of refuge. And once upon entering the city, they were no longer under the threat of the avenger of blood. So you have this picture of this person being hidden where they can no longer be found. Our life in Christ is the very same. It is hidden in Christ. It is safe in Christ. But beyond that, our life is also hidden in a different way. The kind of life that Paul is talking about here is a life that is hidden from our natural senses. It's actually indiscernible to the earthly mind. The earthly eye has no sense to discern it. The mind that is fixated on earthly things does not see it, does not apprehend it. In fact, it sees it as no life at all. This new life is hidden from the physical, natural man. It's only discernible by spiritual senses, and therefore, those whose spiritual senses are dead cannot appreciate it, they cannot value it, they can't even desire it. However, nonetheless, even though the natural man does not discern this life, even though it is hidden to the natural eye, it is real nonetheless. And this life is more real and more substantive than our natural physical lives are now because it is bound up in the eternal God. It is constituted of a substance which is derived personally from Jesus Christ. And our life here, now transitioning, is bound to the work of Christ. We only have this life because of our union with Christ. It talks about in verse 1, because we have been raised with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Our new life was created by his work. It originates in him. In verse 3, he says that we are hidden with Christ. Our lives are tethered to his inextricably. He did not raise us to new life to become independent of him. He raised us to new life for constant dependence upon him. And our new life is connected in every way and form to the work of Christ. If you think of it, you can consider the, the, this picture of our lives being like a coin. This transition which occurred, if you think of the way a coin has an, as a relief and, as, and it leaves an impression. If you take a coin and you, you press the surface of a coin into some permeable material like clay or, or whatever, a mold, the coin produces a, 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 an impression upon the object that you press it into. Think of that, this new life in this way. When we come to faith in Christ, that transition, the resurrection 
to new life produces a death to the old life. It's the death, the death to the old lives happens as a consequence of our being raised to new life. That is why they happen in tandem. And yet this new life has a bearing upon what the Apostle, call, the Apostle Paul then calls us to do. And that brings us to our next main point, the call. In verse 2, actually half, the last half of verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, our lives are bound up in Christ. Since we have new life, the old man is no longer alive. He's dead. We are called to seek and to set our minds on things which correspond with our new life. How are we to understand this? The apostle here is calling us to aspire to something different. We are to aspire to something different. First, aspiration is God-designed. We were born to aspire. Every human being in this room naturally, natively aspires constantly. We aspire to all sorts of things. To aspire is to be human. We aspire when we desire things, when we set our affections and our minds and our thoughts on things. We think about the things that we wish would happen. We ponder what we will do to have them. And we choose to pursue them. We organize our lives around our goals and our dreams. And we seek to pursue those things that we wish to have. Aspiration and ambition is not something which we should despise. It's God-given. It's natural. It's native. Mankind aspires. And yet, how should we understand aspiration? Well, we aspire with, with multiple parts of who we are. You aspire to things in, um, in, by using the various faculties in which God has given you. That aspirations involve our minds, our hearts, our wills, and our physical bodies. What you aspire to and what you, what you are ambitious for involves what you think and what you believe is worth having. So it engages your mind. It also engages your heart. You, you want things. You wish for things. Your heart is the, is the source of our, your desires and your affections. And then your will decides to pursue the things which your mind informs it and your heart is drawn to. And then, of course, we choose to act in ways in our lives in order to get what, the things that we wish for. Our aspirations reveal who we are on the inside. Our aspirations reveal the way we think. If you think a certain way, you can, your mind can be judged by what others see you wish or what you want or what you believe is right or what you believe is good. If you want something, it's a revelation of what's inside your heart. So our aspirations are really judged by their, their goal, 
their aim, their object, what's right or what's wrong or what's wise or what's foolish. Our aspirations actually provide something of a measure of our lives, a measure of what we perceive our lives to be. Whether we are sinful or foolish, or whether we are wise and sanctified, our aspirations reveal what's in our hearts. So here the Apostle Paul is reflecting upon the aspirations of of men, and he's calling us to have sanctified aspirations. Our aspirations should not be on things which no longer correspond with our, our lives here. Our new life is in Christ. So what does the Apostle Paul say? In verse 1, he says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What is this above that the Apostle's talking about? And what are the things that are above? We should not be confused into thinking that Paul is talking about a distinction between physical places. It's not preeminently physical places that he's referring to. The contrast is to things on earth. The above that he is talking about here is not, is not a physical sort of separation. It's not a, a mere cleaning up of our earthly aspirations. He's not saying that we should seek things that are higher than what we think of now and yet are still earthly. He's not saying, think of things that are more noble and yet still earthly. What does this look like? Many, many people in our day, you'll hear much about helping the helpless, feeding the poor, giving your life to philanthropic engagements. There's a, I, live in, I live and work in a, in a corporate environment, and um, I, I read a lot about how CEOs and business leaders are, con- are continually trying to propagate the ideas that there's this thing called um, uh, uh, benevolent capitalism, or we can do good while we're still doing business. And, and I reflect upon that, and, and, and I find myself um, appreciative of the fact that people see the value of helping others. And people see that living a life to help others is more fulfilling than living a life that is merely engaged in self-indulgence. But this is not what the Apostle Paul is referring to. If we have our aim set on earthly things, those earthly things themselves will not ultimately fulfill us. He says that we should seek things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's referring to a different principle altogether. This principle is a new rule of thought for Christians. It's a guiding principle for our actions, a new measure, a new standard. How are we to understand this? Well, we can understand this better if we look at contrasts the Bible gives us between the things we should pursue and the things we should put off. If we, if we were to read on in this same chapter, in verse 5 through 10, he says we should put off and put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, obscene talk. Compare that to what he says we should put on, verse 12 through 17. 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, thanksgiving, and above all, love. In Galatians chapter 5, we see a similar contrast between the things which are the works of the flesh versus those things which are the fruit of the Spirit. We are, we are to put off anxiety, vanity, greed, self-indulgence, and we are to put on and pursue those things which comport with the, the Word of God. Every search and destroy mission that you go on for sin to pursue sin in your hearts, every honest confession of sin and repentance towards God, every purposeful effort to try to put to death the sins of the flesh, every attempt for the Christian to do good for the name of Christ, however feeble or however unimpressive, these are the things which please God, and these are the things which God calls us to. Earthly-mindedness is, an, is a fixation on things which are finite. It's a fixation on things which are temporary and fleeting. Whereas heavenly-mindedness has to do with our casting our eyes towards the things which derive from Christ and which are straight, not distorted, which are pure and undefiled. But how do we think of our activities on earth? If this is what God is calling us to do, if we are to pursue the things where Christ is and be like those things and have those things, what does that mean for what we are to do here? Paul, the Apostle Paul is not calling us to despise earthly engagements. He's not calling us to, to despise our physical life. Back in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was actually correcting uh, an error of the day propagated by Gnostic heresy, that the physical was somehow evil and should be rejected. And he puts that down, and he says that's, those things have an appearance of godliness, but they have no power over the flesh and the desires of the flesh. And so here in chapter 3, when he says we are to seek and set our minds on the things we're above, where Christ is, he is not saying we despise physical things. He's contrasting the principles. He's contrasting the way we go about our aspirations and what our final ultimate goals are. And in this way, our earthly engagements become sanctified. Our earthly engagements become reoriented and corrected. This is how we can participate in things that, are, that seem so mundane. This is how you can teach your children or clean your floors or, uh, or fix an error in whatever your, your work engages you to do. This is how you can get up in the morning and do things over and over again for the glory of God, which no one may notice, because these things are things which God has called us to do. How, how are we to think through the, the hopes and wishes that we have here on earth? Our goals cannot terminate on these things. Our goals can't terminate on things like fulfilling relationships, being married, having children, having wonderful friendships, having gainful employment, having a successful career, having a safe and comfortable home, maybe enjoying frequent vacations, having physical and material prosperity, pursuing rest and ease and entertainment. 
those things are not wrong. The Apostle Paul is not saying we should reject and despise those things. But he's saying that we should not set our hearts and our hearts, minds and our thoughts and our aspirations for them. Our highest joy is the Lord and his things. And so in our earthly engagements, we can pursue him through the way in which we conduct ourselves here in this world. He becomes our highest pleasure. We find our joy in him. We find our joy in the things that he loves. We find our joy in, the, in being like him. We find our joy in being like him because it pleases him. And when we find our joy in him, we are freed from the insatiability and the failure that earthly things have to give us the fulfillment that we pursue. We can go on to enjoy God's gifts. We can go on to enjoy them and be thankful for them. We can enjoy food and drink and rest and relationships and recreation and work, properly understanding it, properly giving God glory for it, properly honoring God through prayer and thanksgiving for it. So how are we to seek and to set our minds for these things? We have to have a heart for them. We have to want them, take our interests in them, study them, revolve our employments around them, invest ourselves into pursuing them. So if this is what our pursuit is, and we are to pursue the things of God and the things of Christ, it reorients our lives now. How are we to think about our hopes in this world not coming to happen, not coming to fruition, not being achieved? We can have peace when goals we have in this world don't happen because our ultimate aspirations are for another world. If our final goal is to have Christ and to have more of him and to have the things that are of eternal value, then when we don't have the things in this world which we may pursue as a means of honoring him and glorifying him, when he chooses not to give those things or we lose them, we, we can have peace because our ultimate aspirations and goals are still there. We can learn to be faithful and we can learn to pursue the things which are right and pursue knowing God more intimately, knowing his ways. We can seek the kingdom of heaven first and trust that the things of this world, which are means by which we can have those things, will be given to us in time. And the things which are not necessary are not helpful for us. God will, in his own wisdom, not give them to us. And so now we, the apostle here goes on to say why we should seek these things. He says in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The reasons we should pursue these things is because they comport with our life. Our life is, is no longer fixated on earthly principles. It's fixated on things which are eternal and have eternal weight and value. Christ is where our life is. Our life is hidden with him. If it's hidden with him, then when he appears, the apostle says, we also will appear with him. If you think about the ways in which your pursuits now constitute the what you hope for and what you wish to have, and you take the apostle's words here, and this becomes your goal, then you will, by degree, 
over degree, over degree, appreciate and wish for and hope for the things of God more and more and more while here. Those, for, those of us who have our affections for that world and for what Christ brings for us, when he comes, we will not find ourselves in a strange place. We will find ourselves in the very place that our hearts have been all this time. It will be familiar to us. It will be home for us. And the things which we have been pursuing and that we are pursuing now, we will finally one day have in full measure. There is a lot that we could ask ourselves. If, if what the earth gives us is not ultimately satisfying and fulfilling, we, we may experience happiness here outside of God. We may experience joy outside of God. We may experience pleasures, um, satisfaction in our work, satisfaction in the work that God gives us, satisfaction in our, in our, our spouses, our children. In, in the kindness of God, he is benevolent to people who do not know him and have no care for him. I, I oftentimes hear Christians say the world does not have satisfaction or does not have joy. I think people in the world actually think they do. But, but sadly, any joy and happiness that they have, it, it's fleeting. It's not going to be there forever. If, if you are not interested in the Christ of the Bible, if, you, if, if this is not something which is attractive to you, then be warned that the things which you are trying to fill up are not going to ultimately satisfy. If you're satisfied now or if you think you're satisfied now, just be warned that there is a day when those things will no longer be here. And for those of us who are in Christ, this should be a reminder for us that our heart's affections are not fixated on what we see around us. Perhaps we have become uh, concerned or anxious over the affairs of the world. We don't know what 2021 is going to look like. We don't know what um, our country in its internal um, rest or unrest will be like in 2021. We've seen a lot of things which can be discouraging. Many of us find ourselves anxious or, or frustrated, sometimes even angry over what we see and hear. But it's a reminder for us that our lives are not bound up here. And there, are go there is going to be turmoil, and there's going to be unrest, and there are going to be disappointments, and there are going to be things which ultimately will, will not satisfy our longings. And so those of us who have come to Christ need to remember to set our affections on him and not be earthly-minded. Earthly-mindedness will, will cause us to lose the satisfaction and the privileges that we have in knowing Christ. But we should be encouraged that we, can, we are not on this mission on our own because he who has given us new life is, is with us and continues to be with us, and it is his spirit which resides in us. He is the source of this change, and he is the source of our satisfaction. And we can continue to employ the means of grace through God's word and through prayer, through Christian community. We can encourage each other to pursue the things of value, the things of heaven. What is it 
that, that gets your heart moving? What is it that you wish would happen in the world? Do you find that these are the things that you wish for? Do you find that when things in the earth that are happening here, which may cause our earthly physical bodies some level of anxiety, do they unravel you? Or do you, have, or do you remember that your life is hidden with Christ? It is safe there. Moreover, not as only is it safe, but our aspirations and our goals being found in Christ will never be disappointed and never end. Christian, we should not be people who despair. We should be hopeful because the things that we set our minds and our hearts on are sure and they are going to happen. If we set our hearts and minds on things of this earth, they're fickle and they're fleeting. We are setting ourselves up to be disappointed. But our lives are not bound up here. They're bound up in Christ. And we are reminded that regardless of what happens here, Jesus our Savior is going to appear. And when he appears, the life which you have entrusted to him, which others may not be able to observe, it will be revealed. And the things which you have set your goals on and aspirations on, they will come with him in full form. Please pray with me as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us out of the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you for your peace that you give. Lord, for the times we have allowed that peace to be unsettled, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would help us to remember where, we're, where our lives are are and where our future is. We pray that you would give us the grace to pursue these things, to cast our mind on these things, to honor you in the way that we conduct ourselves. We pray that you would help us not to be frustrated by not having the things which are earthly. We pray that you would help us to ha not set our ambitions low, but to set them to the, to the place where they ought to be. We pray that we would, Lord, ask for great things, that you would clothe us in righteousness, and that we would give ourselves to the pursuits of being like Christ day in and day out, and that we would not give ourselves to the pursuit of material things or the pursuit of fleshly pleasures, that you would help us to remember that they are never going to gratify. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to put off that old man. We pray, Lord, that you would please be honored, and that in us your glory would radiate and that others who see us, Lord, would see the heaven and see the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We ask for your help. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would lift us. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.